the time, it was an unremarkable event. In Roman-occupied Jerusalem, it was frequent that leaders would rise up and proclaim Israel's deliverance was at hand. It was frequent that leaders with this message would gain a following. And it was frequent that Roman heads of state would sniff out these movements and execute their leader. Thousands of people were crucified by the Roman Emperor. Thousands of people whose names and stories are lost to history. Historians of the day, such as Tacitus and Josephus, tell the stories of other Messianic independence movements in the centuries around the birth of Christ. And if you want to geek out on the history, you can check them out. But I think Josephus' book is like this one. But for the most part, even the leaders of movements large enough to write about at the time are largely unknown to the general public. Every school child learns about the Caesars. Few will learn about Bar Kokhba. And yet we know about this Jesus of Nazareth. Because in the intervening 2,000 years, his followers have claimed that his death, amongst all the other deaths on a Roman cross, was the pivotal event in the history of the universe. And they have claimed that unlike every other person in the history of the world, when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And his death and his resurrection form the key of understanding what God is up to in this world and what it means for our lives. For the next few weeks, I want us to explore what happened on the cross at Golgotha. What are the events that led to Jesus being placed upon the cross? And what have the followers of Christ claimed about the cross in the two millennia since his death? The first half of this series is going to look at history. Who is Jesus? What was going on culturally and societally? And what exactly did Jesus do to be executed by the Roman state? We're going to talk, uh, we're going to talk about first century Israel-Palestine the different economic and political realities, and try to see Jesus' movement and teaching in the context. The last three weeks of this series are going to look at, the, at different understandings of what the cross means for us and for the cosmos. We'll look at different historical theological perspectives on what happened on the cross beyond the death of one man. But we're going to begin today by looking at who Jesus was. What about his early life led him to a cross at Golgotha? What were his teachings? What drew crowds to him? And we might start to see in this why he was identified early on as a threat. But first, a brief history of the people of Israel. Israel were the people descended from Abraham whom God had called to leave his father's land. God said that if Abraham would go where God sent him, God would bless Abraham to be the father of a great nation, and in turn bless all the nations. Abraham's descendants came to be enslaved in Egypt, where God raises up a leader, Moses, to lead God's people to freedom. God does many miracles, performs many signs and wonders, and leads them to freedom with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And on the basis of this redemption, this rescue, God gives the people Israel a law code, a specific way to live as his own people. Then God leads the people Israel into the land he promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants. And within this land, the people Israel are called to live according
according to the law God gave them. As Israel set, to, uh, set about to live according to the law, different institutions, different offices were set up so that the people could live as best as they could according to these laws. Some were officially set up, some came about by happenstance. The first office that was established was the office of priest. They were the mediators between God and the people, offering sacrifices to atone for sin. They were servants of the people before God. The next office was the kingly office. The people crying out to God, demanding a king to keep them safe from the enemies all around them. They wanted one person to lead them, to lead them in battle and to guarantee their security. And so God raised up kings. But to serve as a check and a balance on the king, to remind the king that the king couldn't do whatever he wanted, there is a law to which the king is accountable, God would raise up prophets. Oftentimes those in power did not want to hear a message from those outside of power speaking on behalf of God. They didn't want to hear that their power had a check or there was someone to whom they were accountable. They wanted to be able to do whatever they wanted to do. Isn't that why it's good to be the king? So the prophets were often put in dangerous positions and were often hurt and punished. But God continued to raise up faithful people who called the king and called the priests and called the people to be accountable to the law and the word of God. Those are the three primary offices of people who appear in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Christians have understood that in his teaching and in his life, Jesus occupied all three of these offices. And I want us to look at a piece of scripture that outlines how Jesus' ministry incorporated all three offices. It's from Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law and, and that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would, have, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. Jesus is just flexing at this point. Mm -hmm. That's what the kids say when they talk about showing off. Mm -hmm. A large crowd followed uh, He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. So the majority of this text centers around the Sabbath laws. There are a ton of laws that talk about what you cannot do on the Sabbath. They stem from the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The seventh day was to be a day of rest. It was to honor the God who created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. If God can take a rest, so can you. Remember that when the emails pile up. But this, the Sabbath was also a reminder, not just of God's work in creation, but of where the Israelites had come from. When they were slaves in Egypt, the Israelites had to work every single day making bricks. Every day. Every single day. Working and toiling, toiling and working. When God says you shall remember the Sabbath day, it's a reminder to the Israelites that they aren't in Egypt anymore. They have been saved. God has redeemed them. The Sabbath laws weren't meant to be restrictive, rather they were meant to be a reminder of the love and provision of God. In our text this morning, we begin with hungry disciples. Clearly not Methodists. Because <laughs> there's always food in the Methodist church. If you're never hungry, if you're, you know, that's this joke is not going anywhere. <laughs> no, we just acknowledged it. <laughs> so the disciples are hungry, and they walk through the grain fields and pick some grain to eat. The Pharisees say, what are you doing? And they turn to Jesus and say, how can you let this happen? There's another set of laws in the Old Testament that are relevant here. Those are gleaning laws. Farmers and landowners were told to leave 10% of their field unharvested, and they were only permitted to make one pass through the fields for harvest. What was left was for the poor. So if you couldn't afford food, you could walk through a field and eat of that which you found. And the root basis for this was God's provision. God provided the landowner crops, and God provided for the needs of the poor through these laws. So what do we see going on here? The Sabbath law was to be a reminder of God's provision. The gleaning laws are about God's provision. And the Pharisees are getting mad at the disciples for enjoying God's provision. The Pharisees had taken the law and turned it into a weapon to use against the people, particularly the poor and the marginalized. Jesus responds in the face of this, saying, The Pharisees have missed the point. They are not using their power rightly. They have power in and through the law, but they are accountable to God for the proper exercise of that power. And instead of using their power and using the law to free the people, they are exploiting and oppressing the people. In this, we see Jesus exercising the office of prophet. Jesus and the Pharisees don't always get along well in the Gospels, which might be a bit of an understatement. A good bit of that stems from the economics of first century Galilee. Jesus' disciples, the people that made up the crowd who followed Jesus, Jesus' friends and neighbors, Jesus himself, were peasants, the rural poor, who were increasingly being crushed by the economic wheel of the time. We're going to talk a lot more about this over the next couple of weeks. Buckle up, friends. But here's how part of it worked. There were a few very wealthy families in Jerusalem who had benefited from the temple economy. They'd lend money to rural peasants so the peasants could plant more crops, or pay their taxes, or do anything that you need to do with money, which is a lot of things. 
On the one hand, isn't this just good community investment? But what would happen next is the amount of interest, which they weren't allowed to charge, but they charged anyway, the amount of interest that would be charged on the loan was more than a peasant family could pay. And they need more debt to continue planting crops to pay off their original debt. And eventually the land would be foreclosed on, which would lead them to indentured servitude. So when the Pharisees tell a group of rural poor, a group of hungry people who probably have no other recourse for food, that they are in violation of the Sabbath law for eating grain set aside for them, Jesus rightly calls them out. They had taken a marker of the people's deliverance and made it into something that would further cement their new economic bondage. Then the story changes locations. It stays on the same thing, but we see Jesus occupying a slightly different office. We go to a synagogue, and the Pharisees are looking to entrap Jesus. More discussion and interpretation of the Sabbath law happens, and then Jesus heals a man in a synagogue. Now, there's a distinct difference between temple and synagogue, so it's not like Jesus is standing in the literal place of a priest in this moment. But the synagogue is still a holy place. And in this holy place, we see Jesus mediating a human need between a person and God. The man came to a synagogue. It's the Sabbath, so he was probably coming to observe the Sabbath. But I wonder if he also came hoping God would meet him. I wonder if he came hoping that one day God might hear his cry and deliver him. And here is this Jesus, who sees his need, and who gives him a command and brings about his holiness. This passage ends with a pronouncement from Isaiah. And think about the language used. Here is my servant whom I have chosen. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Till he has brought justice through to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. This is royal language. This is a pronouncement that would be made of a king. This is declaring that Jesus will be the king of the Jews who was promised a new David. When Jesus is making pronouncements about the Sabbath law, he's not doing it as a mere rabbi giving his two cents. He's making them as God's chosen and anointed king. If Jesus says healing on the Sabbath is appropriate, he's making an enacting policy. If Jesus says plucking wheat on the Sabbath is okay, he's leading the people. Jesus is presented in these short verses as prophet, priest, and king. His ministry was about fulfilling those three offices. But the problem, friends, is that there were others who considered themselves as fulfilling those offices. There were priests. There was a king. There were lots of people who thought they were prophets. And Jesus coming onto the scene, especially for the priests and especially for the kings, is a threat to their power. And what do people in power not want to do? But in first century Israel-Palestine, there were a number of problems that needed solving. There were a number of abuses that needed to be stopped. The people were being oppressed and needed deliverance. The people were crying out for a savior. And here was Jesus to call out the abuses of power, to mediate between God and the people, to bring about deliverance, and to lead the people into a new way of being. This is going to be met with resistance to those already in power, 
Jesus in one of these places. 